Welcome to episode 1597 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Sam Miller of ESPN. Hello, Sam. Hello, Ben. Finally found a time to talk. (laughs) It's been really hard to figure out when to do a podcast because there's been so much baseball. So much baseball. What a week. Yeah, it is a week. Uh, <laughs> it feels like more than that. I I keep feeling like we're deeper into the postseason than we are. And then I keep remembering we've been sprinting and sprinting to get to this point, but we're still at the starting block. Like this is when the playoffs begin. Usually we still have that many games left and it feels like we've already been through just like a, a marathon this week. Yeah, I I don't know. Do I need to bring this into it? There was a day with eight games, and people were really excited that there were eight games. And then there were other days there was a day with four games and a day with five games. And I have to admit that I don't find the eight games to be any more overwhelming than the four or five. I know Mm. some people really like that feeling of of chaos and and overlap, Mm -hmm. Um, but I can only really focus on the thing that I'm watching. And I can only watch, like the day that there there were eight games... I only got to watch three because I started with the Braves and the Reds, and then and then mm-hmm. they went because of these new postseason rules where they they don't start a runner on second base. Can you believe it? It's weird. It's <laughs> no. weird it's how they changed baseball. Yeah. Anyway, because of that, then by the time that was over, basically there were there were no other games. So then I I picked up on the uh, I think I picked up on the the Cardinals and the the Padres and I got to see uh, the bulk of that and then that ended and then I watched um, Cleveland and the Yankees and then that went you know five it was like five and a half hours or something and then by the time that was over it was like the ninth inning in in Los Angeles yeah there's like 10 minutes left in the Dodgers game yeah and so the basically like I, I remember my experience when I was a younger person and I would look at music festival shows and I'd be like oh my gosh can you believe how many bands are playing <laughs> and then you go and you're like oh yeah but I mean like the day is still only like there's still only 24 hours in the day yeah, and you just end up missing you want to see her on the different stages at the same time right exactly and then if you accidentally end up in like the, the dance tent and like then like the dance tent is the equivalent of like a 13 inning scoreless game where like before you realize it you've spent like four and a half hours in the dance tent and you missed all all sorts of other yeah. other shows so anyway to to me i actually prefer the four day, the four game, or, or maybe a, f- a five game is nice because then it there's just enough overlap that you don't have any empty space, which mm-hmm. we we would have had la- uh, you know on Thursday except for the the rain out to the eight day where I feel like the eight day dilutes all of our collective attention and also you you know you're missing things and yeah. so it it's weird because when there are four games you feel like. Oh, well, I don't want to miss any of it. I can't miss any of it. Like you have you have the FOMO, right? Like mm-hmm. a game is happening 
action is happening, suspense is happening, you gotta see it. When there are three or four games going on at once, which happens in the eight-day game with the staggered starts, you have to, like, you just, there's no way to avoid missing a lot of action. And so you you just concede, oh, yeah, that's right, that's right. I, I You remember <laughs> that there's a lot of sports you don't watch. Right. And, and you resign yourself to that. And so then none of it feels quite so necessary as when you just have the four-day, four-game four day, boom, 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 boom. So anyway, yeah. There was a lot of baseball, but I actually felt like Thursday and Tuesday felt like more and more and more immersive and more enjoyable to me. Now, that's because I, I'm a I'm a more of a, a, a I, I think that there are people who are who really enjoy the, the chaos of a thing. And then there are other people who enjoy that the sort of dedicated attention to a thing. And I, I prefer the the dedicated attention to the event, like where mm-hmm. everybody's watching the same event rather than like, oh my gosh, 50 things are happening at once. Yeah. Like in the, fi- you know, in the 30 for 30 where it was the the OJ chase day. Did you mm-hmm. ever see that? Yes. Well, I don't remember any of those things happening. I was very <laughs> focused on the OJ chase. And so I was not like, the, the fact that there was like an NBA finals game going on at the same time some people really remember that day because they were there was also an i think an nba finals game or something like that going all i remember is the chase and so (laughs) anyway all right yeah no i felt the same way and i guess i watched baseball for really like 13 straight hours or so on wednesday and it's the most baseball i've watched in a day and i still felt like i've missed a lot of stuff i mean i've been really like wearing out my last channel button (laughs) i know there are other ways to watch i I watched a little of espn's squeeze play which is sort of like a a red zone for baseball and our pal jason benetti and and our other pal mike petriello they've done a great job with that of course but i do enjoy watching one broadcast but i felt like i did have to keep switching back and forth a bit and i still knew i was missing out like when i look back at some of these series it's like oh I, i just didn't see as much of that series because it happened to be on at the same time as four other games and I was going between one or the other and maybe it wasn't as close and it just sort of ended before I I even felt like I had really gotten situated in that series. So I do feel that loss a little bit. It was kind of a fun one-time thing. Anyway, I was going to ask how your quote-unquote fall frenzy went, so now I guess I know. Yeah, but I'm not not complaining. I I don't want it to seem like I'm I'm complaining or anything like that. I'm just, I'm really... I want to I want to uplift the Tuesday Thursday days which I thought mm-hmm. were also classic baseball days. Yeah, even though it was overwhelming at times, I did have a lot of fun this week and I'm still enjoying it cuz we're recording early Friday morning when we have a bunch of games ahead of us later today. And I still think the expanded playoff format is a bad idea for any other season. I hope this never happens again. And yet I can still enjoy this. I can still see the positives in this. And I think that this has hammered home that I really do prefer two out of three to single elimination. Like, I've enjoyed the single elimination wildcard games and the stakes and the suspense and the do or die nature of it. But Two out of three, I I really just like better. I mean, it feels a little more telling. Not that it's that telling. And there's time for, like, a little bit of a a narrative to build up or, like, comebacks to happen. Or you can sort of sit on a series for a little bit and think about what's coming. And one game can be affected by the previous game. So there's some continuity and and a, a story builds up over the course of it. So I really do prefer this, I think. And if we just went to two out of three for the wild card round in the future, which I don't really think will happen, I would be happy about it. Yeah, yeah, I, I guess I agree with that. 
All right, so let's go around the horn here, I guess, and kind of catch up as well as we can. I've I've jotted down a few notes just to try to keep some of this stuff straight in my mind, and it's it's hard to switch into this mode where we analyze individual games or even best of three series as if they're very meaningful. I always find that sort of a, a difficult thing to do when suddenly we roll around to October and it's like, oh, I have to write about a game? I never write about a game. What do you even find out in a game? But of course you learn maybe not a lot in these games, but they still matter quite a bit. So if we can just uh, skim over these series at least, and we'll see if we have anything to say. Dodgers Brewers wrapped up on Thursday night, and I don't have too much to say about that series because the Dodgers just went about their business and the Brewers bowed out quickly and with no Corbin Burns and no Devin Williams, it made it feel like even more of a mismatch. But Kershaw was incredible, obviously, and even though the Brewers lineup is not particularly imposing, he was great, and it was just a pleasure to watch him. And I wasn't even thinking about the Kershaw narrative all that much. It just it feels like we're stuck with that unless he wins the World Series. We're, we're just sort of stuck with the Kershaw playoff narrative, and no matter how good he is in a, a wildcard game, it's not going to end those questions forever. And frankly, that's understandable. Like, he really has pitched worse in the playoffs than in the regular season by a, a significant degree. So I get it. But it was fun just to sort of watch him be his vintage self. I mean, not totally his vintage self. He doesn't throw as hard as he did when he was young. But we've talked throughout the season about his resurgence and how he's gotten some of that speed back. And it's really made a huge difference because now there's actually a separation between some of his breaking balls. And he still throws a, a ton of curves and sliders, like more breaking balls than anyone else. But he can now dial it up at least into the low 90s a little bit. And it was just kind of a, a clinic. So I really enjoyed the Kershaw start without thinking about any of the baggage associated with Kershaw starts in October in general. Yeah, the Brewers, I mean, if there is a memory of the weakened field of a 16-team playoff series, it's definitely going to be the Brewers being in it, <laughs> which isn't to say that the Brewers couldn't have gone somewhere if they hadn't, you know, lost their best starter and arguably their best reliever, as as was, was really hammered home. They might have been able to, it's only, you only need two wins. You know, we talk mm-hmm. about a, this small sample of a three-game series, but of course, this is an obvious point. It only needs to be two games, and the Brewers could definitely have won two days against the Dodgers. But when you watch this, you know, when you when you watched it like on paper and when they show the lineups and when the you know season stats pop up for each batter's first plate appearance and when they show who's warming up in the bullpen and and when they show the, the you know, the dugout and all that, you just go, wow, that's like so many of the good players in this game are on the Dodgers and the Brewers really like will be remembered not they probably won't be remembered but <laughs> no. i will remember them as being you know the the, the a, a very very poor i mean i guess what i'm saying is this off season when we're talking about expanded playoffs i think a lot of people are going to go oh, come on the the brewers made it last year like the brewers <laughs> last year made it can you believe the brewers made it last year do we really want to have the brewers in the postseason there were a lot of references this is a bigger point but uh there were a lot of references to the brewers batting average that they hit 223 and this was the year of of really lousy batting averages across baseball and it's it is like really crazy to think that a team with a 223 batting average 
is in the playoffs. And it's like not crazy. I guess it, what I mean to say is that if you told the 2000 version of, of you and me that a team with the 223 batting average was going to make the playoffs, there would have required a lot of explanation. And the Brewers' batting average isn't even the most. The, the Cubs have a lower batting average. The Reds had a the lower Reds, batting yes, average. 212. The Reds had a 245 BABIP, I know. which is incredible. <laughs> and so I've been thinking a lot watching these games about, like, as these batting averages just cycle through, like, you know, Gary Sanchez had a yeah. 150 batting average. And I think the the what Roberto Perez the Cleveland catchers collectively had like a I think like a 139 batting average <laughs> yeah. and so the experience of watching the Brewers oh that I remember what I was gonna say Christian Yelich who uh, it was it's been very hard it's been very hard to watch him all year to watch him struggle and to watch him try to find his timing all year long even from the first weekend of the season, he came up in a huge situation. I in I think in the second game of the season and like had a batted bat in like a like a really big situation in a in late in the game, extra innings. And ever since then, it's just been a struggle to kind of watch him try to find his timing. But Christian Yelich winning two batting titles and then hitting two oh five yeah. uh, might be one of the one of the great low batting average things of this year i mean so many low batting averages so they would just cycle through these brewers would would come up and you'd be like oh you know here's a pretty good hitter maybe he'll get a hit and then it's oh well he's hitting 176 yeah okay (laughs) kesson Hira, he's really good he's great oh he's hitting he hit 212 you know (laughs) ryan braun ryan braun bounce back year no no 233 there's a lot of low batting averages yeah, and I don't want to. I feel bad for saying this, but like I'm kind of relieved that the Brewers didn't <laughs> upset the Dodgers. I mean, not that I'm I'm rooting against the Brewers for any like personal reason or, or antipathy toward that franchise. It's just like, hey, I want to see the Dodgers. Like they're the best team. They have all of these great players. Like while it would sort of illustrate the vagaries of the the 60 game season and the 16 team playoff format and everything if the Brewers knocked off the Dodgers I don't want to see that I want to see Mookie Betts and Clayton Kershaw and all these great players play for a while longer so sort of happy that that happened I guess yeah I I I uh, I'm not taking this season too seriously but I I will say that I do truly resent that the tiebreaker was best record in your division and <laughs> yeah. I do not I I will I will always hold it against the Brewers that they made the playoffs because of that tiebreaker. I find that tiebreaker to be so, so lazily thought out. So just such an affront to logic that yeah. uh, <laughs> any other tiebreaker, any anything. In fact, it, it is the worst tiebreaker because it is so linked to the already pre-existing imbalance schedule. If right. they had chosen any other random detail that tells you nothing about the team but is throws a little you know kink into it if they had said best record on wednesday i would have said fine those are the rules but this tiebreaker is such a bad tiebreaker so (laughs) yeah and i i saw ken rosenthal tweet about this but teams from the al central went one and six in the wild card round teams from the nl central are one and four 
not that 12 games means that much or you know the fact that they're two in 10 means oh yes they were actually terrible but there was some weakness I think there that was camouflaged because these teams were just playing each other all the time right so, and so you, you yeah. can't tell when you looked at the stats because the, exactly. the stats are against totally the same siloed. players but it's like yeah. oh well these teams are just not as good and they were kind of you know feasting on each other all year yeah Jeff Passan had something I got roped into a thing where I Jeff had uh, had mentioned me in a tweet and so then I got all the replies <laughs> for like four days uh-huh. and I guess he had maybe said something about the the Reds had faced uh, like a poor competition or something and somebody replied if if the division was so weak how come four teams made the playoffs right it's like they're only playing there is no they're completely isolated from the other divisions there is yeah. no way to tell you can't even tell they're in a silo <laughs> it is like saying well it's not even like say it's not saying anything they don't they didn't face any other divisions <laughs> such a weird thing go ahead yeah so the only like takeaway that I would have for future rounds is that the Dodgers, like if they have a vulnerability, it's that they don't really have a bullpen monster or bullpen monsters. Like it's a good bullpen. Everything about the Dodgers has been good. But when Jansen pitched and his velocity was significantly down and then he was not in the safe situation in game two, which may or may not have meant anything. Dave Roberts said he's still the closer and it's not like Jansen was peak Kenley during the regular season anyway, but it's a a very good pen. There are a lot of good options, but even like Gratterall or Jake McGee don't necessarily give you the same feeling of safety and security that a lot of other teams' top one or two guys do. So it's deep, but it feels like it's not quite as elite at the back end of that bullpen. So I wouldn't feel entirely out of it if I were down against the Dodgers late. But, you know, there's so many guys like Adam Kalarik or or whoever else they can just mix and match, even if there isn't like a a Nick Anderson or a, a Chapman or a Britain or you know someone of that caliber back there can I interest you in a uh in a Victor Gonzalez <laughs> sure do you know Victor Gonzalez yeah, yeah. but enlighten me about about him more. Uh, I mean <laughs> well 20 innings 23 yeah. strikeouts two walks a one yeah. point one point three three ERA one point something something fit but it's it's, uh, it's very good it's very I mean good. I'm not I'm not saying that he is your bullpen monster right but you never know who the bullpen monster is going to be by the end of four rounds of it's players. true and it's it's hard to say because like sometimes someone will have a dominant 10 or 20 innings in a bullpen and you know Jeff Sullivan would blog about them and sometimes they would continue to be great like Nick Anderson but other times it, it would not continue and you'd wonder what was going on in those 10 to 20 innings and so it's hard to say because that's the whole season now it's yeah extremely hard okay so reds braves that's the other nl series that's over and we were just talking about the braves and their low batting average and they certainly showed that in this series so credit to max Fried and ian anderson of course those guys are are good and were good but the Braves, you mentioned that this was a, a matchup of the highest BABIP team and the lowest BABIP team during the regular season. The Braves had a 322 BABIP and the Reds were at 245. And 
I do feel like the Reds were a little bit snake bitten all year and maybe even in this series. Like I kept thinking they were going to hit more than they did. And maybe I was overrating their offense, but like 245 Babip, I don't think anyone has a, a deserved 245 Babip really. If you look at their quality of contact and their expected weighted on base and everything, they were better than their actual results and better than some other playoff teams. And even in this series, like there was some lousy cluster luck going on where, you know, there would be hits sort of spread out instead of in the same inning so that they could score. So, they did not score at all in 22 innings, and it was sort of a ignoble exit from the playoffs, and they were a, a trendy pick. I, I picked them to win the series. I think a lot of people did just based on the strength of the starting pitching, but you do have to score a run at least to win a game and you know it's two games so again it doesn't like mean anything larger about the Reds but it it was kind of a continuation of a weird thing that seemed to happen with them all year yeah I mean just what are you gonna do yep (laughs) I don't know yeah so I I think that one game though the, the 13 inning game one there were so many strikeouts in that game and so many rallies not even rallies but like threats I mean you know the Reds would get guys in scoring position over and over and it just felt like sort of oppressive for the first time to me like the the playoff brand of baseball that just amps up strikeouts and walks and home runs and everything like the the three true outcomes rate so far this season has been like 39% in the playoffs, which would be a new high. I mean, it's always a new high. It's a a new high during the regular season every year. And then the playoffs are always a, a few percentage points higher. It's like the playoffs are like a preview of what the regular season will look like a few years later, basically, just, you know, after all of those rates rise as they continue to do. And in that game, it felt a little bit like, gosh like no one can score like the pitchers are too good there's so many strikeouts even if you get someone in scoring position or on third base with no outs or one outs like you just can't push anyone across and and like there are plenty of high scoring games in these playoffs but so much of it is is home run dependent and I don't mind that so much when runs are actually being scored but when runs are not being scored it just feels like futility and flailing over and over again not to discount I mean you know Trevor Bauer's good and Max Fried is good and a lot of those relievers are good but it just felt a little bit like this is too much maybe of the the no contact kind of baseball yeah I mean I I don't I think that pretty much everybody agrees about that and uh it feels more true every year mm-hmm. yeah you know I think that watching Clayton Kershaw strike out 13 in a dominant performance is definitely more enjoyable than it used, you know, than it is watching, you know, Clayton Kershaw strike out four in a dominant performance from 1987. I think mm-hmm. that in for the extreme pitching performances or for, you know, like when you're seeing the best pitcher pitching at his very best, it can be fun yeah. uh, to watch this style of play to, to see. I mean, it's like watching the dunk competition in, in 2020 versus watching the dunk competition in, you know, 1989, the, the level of, you know, athletic achievement is, is made a lot more clear and you can really appreciate what these pitchers are doing. But yes, as, as you know, when you're watching eight games in a day and they all kind of look like this to some degree, uh, it, it is, I agree, oppressive. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. All right. Well, sorry, I don't have more to say about the, the Reds and the Braves, but it was two games and the Reds didn't score. So uh, that that kind of is your takeaway from that series, I think. But I look forward to, to future Reds teams because they have put together a, a certainly entertaining staff. And it is like almost a tragic thing that they went from a team that couldn't pitch but hit pretty well to a team that pitches great but can't hit mm-hmm. or at least hasn't had the results it's like if they could just put those two things together I guess they'd be the Dodgers <laughs> but they're not they're one or the other so it, it hasn't worked out that well well they can hit I mean they they can hit they had they had a good offense they they just hit they had a 245 BABIP in the regular season and then they had yeah. a bunch of you know bad cluster luck in the postseason I mean they didn't earn they didn't earn victories and so you can't say that they uh, mm-hmm. deserved any better but if you're looking at them as a franchise as a collection of players and how well they're set up for next year and and various other things they do seem to have talented offensive players and it was a good team i picked them to win not just this round but the next round too yeah me too yeah so i guess maybe we uh underrated the braves or maybe not because it was two games (laughs) so all right There are two series that are still in progress here in the NL. Cardinals-Padres is uh, still going, I'm glad to say, is not over yet. We are getting a third game today. And this series, uh, the Padres were kind of down before it began in a a similar way that the Brewers were because uh, two of their best pitchers are not available for the series. No Clevenger, no Lamette, and their status is uncertain for future rounds if they make it there, particularly Clevenger. And so they had to start Chris Paddock, which uh, would have been a good thing last year and is less of a good thing this year. And they have had to fight it out. And it looked like they were on the verge of elimination in that second game. And then they fought back in a very Padres fashion. And while it has felt like it's difficult to come back in the playoffs now, it's difficult to score runs when you have runners in scoring position. Maybe the Padres are an exception to that because it really is a a very explosive offense, obviously, as they showed. And they're just so exciting. And it was so fun to see Fernando Tatis get to do his thing on the postseason stage and Manny Machado and Will Myers. I mean, there's so much offense. And I almost pity the Cardinals because they made it here, too, in a less impressive fashion. And they're just like the opposite of the Padres when it comes to... Mm. I don't know, watchability, how riveting they are, how sensational they are. They're just like a very good defensive team with a lot of the same players we've seen play in the postseason before. Not a ton of stars, just a, a bunch of, you know, kind of good players who have combined to to form a, a pretty decent team. And then you have the Padres where you're just seeing all these superstars who play in this engaging way. And so a part of me just wants the Padres to keep playing because I feel like that would be good for baseball and good for my own personal entertainment for the next few weeks. Yeah, it's a travesty that Clayton Kershaw didn't get to complete the game, by the way. He should have think, yeah. been able to complete the game. Um, <laughs> he only threw 93 pitches. Yeah, he he was within range of like one of the best postseason exactly. game scores like of all time. Exactly. I think it, my colleague Zach Cram was looking that up during the game. So that would have been nice, I think. Like, uh, I mean, sure, you know, save his arm, like do whatever you can to make him continue to be good when it really matters. But yes, I would have liked to see him get up to like 15 strikeouts and a, a complete game shutout. That would yeah, have been nice. Yeah. And, and save his arm. Aren't there like three days off now? 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's no baseball till next week if if you're done with your series. Yeah, so, so you yeah. don't even really like if uh, assuming that you're comfortable letting Walker Bueller start Game One, you don't even need to to save his arm. You, it's full rest for for him if he comes back for Game Two of the NLDS. And 93 pitches, you know, he, anyway, you gotta, I think that when you're dealing with Clayton Kershaw, you have to be respectful of the fact that he is a historically significant figure. And when you give him the chance to make a certain kind of history or to, to do the sort of thing that ends up being one of the like dozen things people mention, let him go get it. What were we talking about? We were talking about the Cardinals who were boring and the Padres (laughs) who, when you're watching the Padres, when you're watching anytime you you turn on the Padres at any point in any game, any point in any game, no matter how far behind or how far ahead they are or how boring or how exciting the game is, you would swear that they are no worse than the second best team in baseball. You just (laughs) like whoever's on the screen that, you know, you put any combination of two padres together in a shot you're like man that team has a lot of talent (laughs) yeah it's really fun and it does sort of like watching tatis succeed almost instantly in the postseason makes me feel for like felix hernandez or or mike trout like these players who are also great and have played for a lot longer and just never got that chance we never get to see them do this like they could do it they would have these indelible moments if their teams were good enough to get them there but they're not and so you know either they never make the playoffs or they they barely make it and that's a shame but I should probably fixate less on who is not here and fixate more on the fact that Tatis is here. Yeah. So this has been really fun. The other uh, on the last day of the season, they were kind of uh, they started polling good players because it was the last day of the season for them. And so the the Giants were trying to come back, and the Padres didn't really care that much. And so they they removed Tatis and they removed Machado, and then they had they had an injury to their catcher, and so then they had to bring. Uh, Austin Nola in from DH to catch and so then they lost the DH spot and so now they had they had you know some backup playing for Tatis they had some backup playing for Machado and they had the pitcher batting and I thought well maybe this will now the Giants you know they have a big advantage and then I looked and I was like no the Padres lineup is still really good like right now in this state the Padres lineup is still really good they had Mm -hmm. They still had six good hitters in that lineup somehow. Did you know that they had a on-base percentage in the ninth spot of 385? <laughs> I did not know that. That's pretty good. That's a all-time record by 10 points. Uh-huh. Helps that it's a 60-game season. But they also didn't... It's not like they were doing that thing where they were doing like a second leadoff man in the ninth spot. They weren't burying yeah. a pretty good hitter. Their ninth spot was where they put their ninth best hitter. Yeah. I right. mean, their ninth spot did better than than that this year they (laughs) they ended up getting a lot of really good performances out of players when they were batting ninth but they they you know they three okay so the padres are uh really good in the cardinals um seems like harrison bader bats 14 times a day (laughs) yeah yeah it's uh they're all really good at defense (laughs) that's what i can say about the cardinals yeah with the padres it's like even will myers like will myers was like the weak link he was like they were trying to trade him it's like where does he even fit on this team couldn't play last year yeah he he was he had like uh didn't he he have he had 490 plate appearances in 155 games last year yeah because he just kept pinch hitting and coming off the bench like they couldn't find a spot 
for him. And it seemed like he was basically being lapped by this new generation of Padres and that he wasn't really going to be a part of their new success. And then he comes out and slugs 606. And again, you know, 60 game season or 55 in his case, but he looked like a, a different and better hitter to the extent that we can tell. So even he was great. Anyway, it's a, a deep team, a very fun team, and we'll talk about them more after they play again. And uh, last NL series, Cubs Marlins. I, I really don't have much to say here because there's been only one game. I and didn't see it. Yeah. Okay. So, so uh, they played two. <laughs> That's what we can say. And I guess the only observation is that they were rained out in that second game. And so they had to wait to see when their game was going to be like, instead of just saying it will be at this time or it'll be on this day, I guess to, to maximize ratings, the idea was that we would slot in the Cubs Marlins game whenever we needed it. So it would be an afternoon game if there was still going to be a a night game, a a higher profile game on Friday. And if not, then this would slot into the primetime spot. And so they just sort of had to wait, I think for that Padres game to be over to know when they had to start and I think they could have had to wait even for the the Dodgers game to be over in a different scenario where the Padres had lost so that's sort of uh, tough for them and their starters to not know when they're going to play but I guess that just sort of accentuates that the series has been relegated to the like the the last spot in terms of entertainment just because of these two teams and because they haven't played as much so We'll catch up on them when they catch up on the other teams. All right. So AL series, Yankees and Cleveland. I thought, I guess, like the the Reds and Braves series a little bit, it was two teams just sort of uh, like one was was playing up to its talents and showing its strengths and the other was not. I mean, I guess in the, the Reds and Braves series, that kind of played out like you you would have expected if you had exaggerated their regular season performance. Like, oh, the, the Reds are not great at offense and can pitch, and the Braves can hit really well, although there were worries about the, the Braves' rotation, and that was not a concern in this series. But with Yankees and Cleveland, it was like, all right, you have the team that allowed the fewest runs in baseball this year and the team that scored the most runs in the American League and now has this fully healthy lineup. Up. And so which one will work in these two or three games? And will good pitching beat good hitting or the other way around? And it was the other way around. So really, I mean, Shane Bieber had his worst start of the season. Brad Hand blew his first save of the season. James Karinchak allowed his second career home run, and it was a big one. And meanwhile, Garrett Cole was dominant and the Yankees slugged seven homers. And and that's kind of what it came down to. So again, it's just uh, two games and weird things happen. So I think what was a a relief to me sort of in this series, and I wrote about this in a, a recap after that extraordinarily long game, which lasted almost five hours and was the longest nine inning game ever of any kind. I think there were people who were demanding the firing of of Aaron Boone and demanding the firing of Sandy Almar Jr. in that game for managerial moves. And we always switch into like hyper-focus on the manager mode in October, which is understandable. And I get why we get mad about moves that managers make. But I just felt like this should be an afterthought in this series and in this game. And I sort of got sick of focusing on 
whatever it was, like Aaron Boone pinch running for Luke Voigt sort of early in that game or, you know, the bullpen moves that he made or didn't make or the moves that Alomar made or, or didn't make. It was like... I don't want to be thinking about Aaron Boone or or Alomar. Like, I I want to be thinking about, you know, the best players doing the best things or failing to deliver those best things. So, like, in that game, it it was like you got to see... For me, it was like about Gio Urshela and it was about Giancarlo Stanton and, you know, it was about Garrett Cole in that series or Shane Bieber not doing what he was supposed to do or, like... That was what I wanted to focus on more so than whether a a certain move was made that might have changed the the win expectancy by one to two percent. You know, like we we focus too much on that stuff. And ultimately, it is the players. It's like Jose Ramirez playing like an MVP or whatever. And I think in that series, there was a good illustration of that because like with Alomar in game two, he made what I thought was a good move, which was bringing in Karen Jack in the fourth inning with the bases loaded and no outs. Like that was ultra aggressive. That was the sort of thing we praised Terry Francona for doing in 2016. You know, Karen Jack had never entered a game earlier than the sixth. And here he was saying, okay, it's the playoffs. Uh, all rules are out the window. And then Karen Jack gave up a grand slam to, to Gio Urshela and it backfired spectacularly. But well, uh, it was because uh, Ben, he yeah. wasn't used to being in that position. <laughs> I, I guess you, you got to. Too, you gotta, yeah. yeah. You can't put <laughs> players in positions that you haven't prepared them for all season. There is yes. absolutely no way to win if a player fails. I know, then right? There's no way to win as a manager. Yeah, and then the other big move in that game, which was pinch hitting for Josh Naylor, which, like, by the way, like he's Josh Naylor. Like everyone was talking about him as I if know. I, I said he I had said one my good story. Game. It's, it's like this guy is like Jim Tomey meets Brian Giles all of a sudden, and it's like look at his numbers, like his career stats I mean it's not a huge sample but he's not a good hitter or he hasn't been to this point like he was lousy down the stretch and then suddenly he goes four for four with a homer and gets a a double earlier in that game and it's like oh my gosh he's gonna pinch hit for the hottest hitter (laughs) on earth it's like it's still Josh Naylor like it's still him so I didn't get that at all and and I kind of applauded Alomar for not buying into like the last five plate appearances But then he brought in Jordan Luplo, who, you know, was then turned around because Boone went from Britain to Loisaga and suddenly Luplo is batting against a righty and historically he's been terrible against a righty. And so I don't know if that was actually the right move, like aside from the fact that Naylor had had a good game and a half, basically. But like that worked out great because uh, Luplo had a, a double and, and scored a couple runs and suddenly everyone went from Sandy Almar Jr. Is, is, you know, what is he thinking pinch hitting here to, oh, he's brilliant and he must know his players and his personnel and you can't question it because it worked out so well. So it's just nonsense. And if I'm remembering right, Luplo's double... That was the play that like Hicks got kind of spun around and could very yeah, easily have been caught too. That so, hard hit. So yeah. even even I mean in in all of these scenarios, not only could a totally different thing have happened in in every case, like Luplo could have struck out and it wouldn't have made the move any different. But you know, like even once the play was eighty five percent done, it still could have gone the other way. Like mm-hmm. it, you know, Hicks could have caught the ball. It, it there's it's just very hard to. To make too much out yeah. of out of what happened, right? Kevin Cash, I apparent, I guess I heard this quote secondhand, but was talking about how in these uh, two game wild card series, it's like man, he he said something like it's man, it's like managing three game sevens in a row, 
which is just on a literal level not true. It's like managing a game five, six, and a seven, right? Mm-hmm. It's it, like we actually have a precedent for this. It's every time a series gets to 2-2 two, two in a seven-game series, then you have a best of three. And so it's not really like managing three game sevens in a row. It's like managing a game five and a game six and a game seven. But we've, I think that Cash is kind of right that we have become that we have become like really obsessed with with treating every game almost as a must win and so you have to bring in your your like we we have very little tolerance for any team ever using their second best pitcher in any situation unless they're up three games to none in a series or whatever and Mm -hmm. so you end up with you know liam hendricks throwing 49 pitches because he got brought into a five-run game in the eighth inning yeah. of uh you know of a the second game of a three-game series and i haven't i haven't developed what i'm gonna say next all that well so um it might end up sounding dumb and maybe i'll end up uh recanting but i feel like we have to get more used to teams losing games in the postseason in in multi-game series that you don't have to win every one they they aren't must win the the only mm-hmm. must wins are the the deciding games now you obviously you want to win all of them and in a playoff series everything is very tense and it's not like the regular season but a lot of managing in the regular season is accepting that there are going to be some losses and you you have to manage around some losses and in the postseason there are also going to be some losses it's okay to lose a game every once in a while you don't have to bring in Liam Hendricks in a five-run game you can use your second best reliever in that situation that's okay we're, we're gonna let you go if you do that or even your third best reliever or your f- maybe even your maybe even your sixth best reliever it's okay in le- so what i'm saying is give managers a lot more leeway to manage for over the course of a whole series instead of having to win every single play all the mm-hmm. time the so i'm i'm saying that the exceptions are in true winner go home games like in a game seven, we can overanalyze manager moves. We can we can be just as as demanding and unforgiving as we are in those games. And then in the World Series, once you get to the World Series, then we can overanalyze everything. But I think even in a in in the second game of a made up playoff round, I think it's okay to let managers kind of float around and try to find the right combinations of players uh, and maybe use the wrong reliever or the wrong pinch hitter or the wrong pinch runner without Mm -hmm. us treating it like the defining moment of their career and they need to be fired. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's a reflection of just how much the emphasis has shifted from the regular season to the postseason, I think. It's like if you don't win this two out of three made up round like your your whole year is a, a waste or something like no one gives you any credit for anything it feels like it was all for naught which uh, should not be the case like at least in a, a normal season if you made the playoffs or if you won your division then that should be an accomplishment you should feel like that was a success it, it doesn't have to be all about whether you happen to get hot for a few weeks in October and that's the only thing that determines success So I don't know. I mean, obviously teams evaluate things that way to an extent, but I don't know if if fans do. I don't know if fans say enough, you know what, that was a good year. And uh, we lost in this weird, fluky part of the year that is separate and this strange tournament that doesn't really reflect true talent. But we had a good run to get there, and, and that's impressive, and I enjoyed the journey. So I think it's okay to to have that stance too. 
All right. A's White Sox. Uh, I'm happy that the A's oh, won a playoff I, series. <laughs> I feel sad to, to to say this to all the White Sox fans out there, but I did not have it in me to watch the A's lose this series. I couldn't handle it. It was the yeah. most it was the most sympathetic to the feelings of the team that I think I've been in a long time because really? but, I mean, we're going to talk about the Twins. Right. And the Twins obviously <laughs> have this Cleveland, in- right? They lost 10 straight uh, elimination games, wow. right? I guess yeah. so. Yeah. With the Twins though, like we, you know, it's it's a thing that we talk about and it's a thing that players have to kind of answer the pregame questions for, but it's all, it's pointed out and it's true that none of the Twins were there in 2003. None of them, not the manager, not the GM, not the players. Nobody. Nobody was there in 2003. It's it is ancient history. All they really have for their history is the last few years and this is obviously disappointing for them to get bounced and it's 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 hard for the twins too they built a, a really good team uh but with the a's it, this really is one long storyline about billy bean and <laughs> the it's you know there's a ton of continuity in that organization a lot of the the people in the in the organization have been there through this whole time and in some ways the a's have been like a continual storyline for all of us since they brought us into into uh, that since 2003 and Moneyball and all of that 2002 and Moneyball and all that brought so many of us into this you know online baseball world and I just <laughs> could not I I I don't I don't I don't know like in 2006 or 2005 if, or, or or around that time if the A's had won I would have been like trying to find some old school baseball fan so that I could like do a touchdown dance in front of them and point at the <laughs> scoreboard and see see haha moneyball wins I don't care about any of that I'm not like looking for validation or vindication or, or anything of the sort it's I'm yeah. emotionally detached from the A's ultimate success but the A's continued failure i am extremely not detached from and to if they had lost another first round i just i, I just don't think that i was going to enjoy watching that <laughs> and when it seemed like they were going to lose that it was pretty painful and i was very happy <laughs> that they managed to hang on <laughs> yeah i mean i'm sorry to see the white Sox go I am because too. that's a they're really fun super too. fun team yeah, yeah much like the padres mm, you so know much like the padres maybe not quite to the same extent where you're overwhelmed by the talent but definitely in terms of entertainment i mean when you go from like luis robert crushing the second longest summer of the year to nick madrigal with a completely different but also entertaining game to abreu and grandal and, and on and on like that is an incredibly fun team and i guess the the solace you can take is that they'll probably be back many times with this core i would think so we'll see them again but yeah, I, I am happy for the A's that they won. Happy for Atlanta that, that they won for the first time in quite a while. Anyway, I, I guess the notable thing, and you already touched on the Liam Hendricks uh, usage in this series, but in Game 3, I mean, that was wild because it was very clear early on that it was going to be a bullpen game. And the whole time I was thinking, how are they going to get through this game, particularly the White Sox, just like looking at the pitchers that they had left. And I just got done saying that we focused too much on managers, but this was a game where the manager mattered. And a lot of people are, are mad at Rick Renteria for how he handled this game. I feel for him because clearly he was counting on more from Garrett Crochet. You know, I'm sure he was hoping to get at least a couple innings from him. And as it turned out, he throws nine pitches and has a a forearm pain and has to leave the game. 
And that really just threw a wrench into their whole plan for getting through that game, I think. But even so, like it it felt like he was so aggressive from the start. It's like you start with Dane Dunning and there's a single and suddenly you have someone up in the pen. And if you're the White Sox, like, do you really have enough good pitchers in your pen that you can give Dane Dunning a a leash that's like one single long? Like, first of all, a single doesn't tell you anything about that pitcher. It's not like, oh, he gave up a single. He doesn't have it today. (laughs) So if you liked him one batter ago, then you you should probably still like him now. It's not like you can just bring in your bullpen monster in the first inning to get out of a gym because there are many more innings left to go after that. And I, I did predict you know pick that that the A's would win the series based on not very much really but if it was based on anything it was that I felt like they did have this very deep bullpen and I wasn't as confident in the White Sox staff beyond the top guys and and that came into play here I think a little bit but it, it was like such a quick succession of pitchers that if you'd had a different team with a different collection of, of pitchers, maybe you could get away with that. But it just didn't seem like the the White Sox could with the guys that they had on hand. And, you know, like they almost did. They didn't get blown out or anything. It, it could have gone very differently. But that was just so aggressive that I wasn't sure it, it fit the talent they had on hand. Yeah, yeah. I would just like to note with appreciation that two big rallies were started with two out walks and uh-huh. the baseball it like we were talking about the strikeouts and the walks and the long grindy at bats and all that part of the reason that it can feel i guess one of the times when i feel most uh, you know uh, kind of bored by it is when you see a uh, 10 pitch at bat with two outs and nobody on and, and and the batter walks and you're like well there's no way he's coming around he's not coming around to score two out walks feel worthless to me i just want you to swing for the fences early in account um uh, with two outs and uh both of those two out walks ended up coming around to score mm-hmm. yeah that's true yeah there have been a lot of walks it like anecdotally i mean in certain games like the the five hour cleveland new york game There were, I think, what, 19 walks? It was tied for the most walks in a nine-inning postseason game. Feels like there have been a lot of guys with lousy command and a lot of really bad base running, like guys getting picked off and running into outs. Neither of us has seen every play of every game, and I'm not basing this on anything concrete. But I've seen all of them. Okay, well, there have been an awful lot of bad base running outs and pitchers who just couldn't find the plate. And I don't know if that means anything. Like I heard broadcasters saying, well, maybe it's because they didn't have a full spring training and they didn't get to practice this or whatever. But Mm. I don't know. I feel like major leaguers probably should be a little bit better than that. It's interesting that, right, neither of us has seen all the games or or probably even, I don't know. How many, what percentage of batters do you think you've seen? 30? (sighs) 30%? I've watched a lot. I've watched, I've watched a lot. I've yeah. watched every minute that baseball could be watched. Mm-hmm. I think with I get a few minutes here or there that I missed, but yeah. maybe thirty or forty percent. Anyway, it's interesting because you and I, I think, have come away with one anecdotal difference. Agreed on the base running, but my feeling has actually been that for the most part, with a with a couple of exceptions, there have been a couple of um, pitchers that have come in and, and not been able to throw strikes. But I feel like this postseason has really been a great example if you wanted to point out 
to somebody the difference between control and command and what we mean when we distinguish or when when we differentiate. And I think it's long been controversial. Like, is there even a difference between control and command? Control being uh, generally used to, to refer to the ability to avoid walking batters and command being the ability to locate pitches and to you know, be put the ball where you want it within the strike zone or or on the edge of the strike zone, and those two things seem like they're describing the same skill, basically being able to put the ball where you want it. But in a crucial way, you can choose to pitch in a way that leads to walks, a lot of walks or a fair amount of walks, mm-hmm. even if you have good command. And I feel like I've seen a, a a lot of pitching in this postseason where the pitcher had good command very good command, maybe even great command, but because they're so cautious, they're so afraid of getting beat on one mistake over the plate that there's a lot of refusal to come into the strike zone, a refusal to mm-hmm. avoid the edges, and a lot of very cautious pitching where the pitchers almost seem to accept that walking two batters is the price of avoiding two home runs uh, mm-hmm. in an inning. And so I have actually felt like we've seen a lot of really great pitching, but a strategic choice to uh, to be very risk averse, uh, well, a particular type of risk averse in mm-hmm. pitching style. Yeah, well, batting averages have gotten so low that, well, in one sense, you have you can be a little less afraid of that because it's less likely that teams are really going to string together two or three hits and and score someone who's on first. On the other hand, you don't want them to hit a, a two run homer or a three run homer either. But it just feels like I don't know if if people have adjusted to that, like Joshian was talking about. You know, he doesn't think third base coaches have been aggressive enough in letting guys try to score because like having someone on third or or second, like it's scoring position, but scoring position doesn't mean what it once did, really. I mean, you're a lot less likely to get that base hit that will actually drive you in from that base. And meanwhile, there are more likely to be homers that can put you in scoring position anywhere. But really, like you're, you're less likely to see that string of hits. You're always less likely to see that in the postseason but particularly today. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I, I would just, I might be totally wrong. I might be imagining it, but watch and I think you'll see two things. You'll see a lot more pitchers basically dotting fastballs off the edge of the strike zone on like 1-0. They're, like, they're not trying to get back into counts in, mm-hmm. in the same way. And the other thing is that there's a lot of talk about pitching backward and pitchers throwing breaking balls on 3-1. And that's, I think there's some truth to that, but it's not, that they're throwing sliders in the strike zone. They're throwing back foot sliders on 3-1. You see a Mm. lot of swing and miss breaking pitches in hitters counts. And that to me is like doubly backward pitching. Uh And it's really interesting. Yeah. Well, I thought it was entertaining when Hendricks came in. I really didn't think he was going to come in in Game 3. I mean, 49 pitches and looked gassed when he came in in his earlier appearance. And you just don't see many teams bringing back relievers, period, on back-to-back days. That's getting rarer and rarer. And to do it after that kind of pitch count is uh, maybe unprecedented this season, I think. So I get that it's the playoffs and everything, but... That's the point where you just have to wonder, like, A, are you endangering this person because he's not conditioned to do that? But B, is he going to give you what he what you think he's going to give you? Is he going to have anything? 
And he was kind of wild, like he was all over the place, but he was still throwing really hard and that was good enough. And it was like fun to watch him sort of, you know, dig deep and and rear back and do that and everything. But also like this is the wild card round, (laughs) you know, like there's a lot more baseball you hope to come. And so you don't want to gas your your best guy this early on. But, you know, that was a a must win game. That really was one. So I, I guess that's what happens. All right, Astros Twins, uh, poor Twins is is the the big takeaway here. Uh, I think a lot of people picked the Twins to win the series. I did. They were the favored team. They were the better team during the regular season, and it just didn't happen yet again. They came up short, 18 straight playoff losses. And that's like the dominant storyline, which is kind of a bummer for everyone on this team because it's not like they lost all those games. It's not like they had anything to do with most of those games. And yet they have to hear about all of those games forever until they win one or or get a a playoff series under their belt. And the Astros, you know, I, I guess what I was saying before the series started is that like a lot of these names are still pretty impressive on the Astros and they're kind of the ultimate team where if you look at their stats from this year, you think, eh, but if you look at the track records, you think, Hey, these guys are still pretty good. Like what does it mean that Altuve didn't hit this year or Bregman didn't hit this year and, or, you know, didn't hit as well as he usually does or, or that other guys had down years and, course everyone is thinking along right now well, it's because they didn't know what was coming regardless i i you know don't really believe that was the the main factor there and you kind of could envision a scenario where well those 60 games aren't really all that predictive and it's more predictive to know what they did in the previous two or three years and so they still have most of the lineup that won a world series and and made a run at others and there's no verlander there's no jordan alvarez like it's it's not nearly as deep or as talented a team, and yet it, it's not at all improbable that they could make a run. And, you know, like they did have some guys step up, like Framber Valdez, for instance, who was great and totally bailed out that staff that was really shorthanded all year long because of injuries and illness. He was great during the regular season. He was great in game one in relief of Granke, and they've had a lot of success in the past with bringing in starters and using them in relief, and that seems to be their strategy again here in the playoffs. So they could totally compete with anyone. It's you know not quite the same Astros team that we saw for the last couple of years, but it's also probably not quite the Astros team that we saw for the past 60 games either. Yeah, I think if we were more used to this sport being 60 games and 16 teams make the playoffs and the regular season doesn't really matter much and you can kind of just sort of, you know, coast on talent if you're one of the top teams and then make it to the playoffs, I think we would probably be used to the, the uh, this Astros season as kind of an archetype of a great team underperforming until they get mm-hmm. to the postseason and turning it on. Uh, we don't have that history in baseball. We don't have that archetype in baseball. And so we assume, which... We might be very right to assume that the Astros aren't very good this year, that their sub-500 record reflects a lot about them. And and if you just simply do the math and start ticking off the players who aren't there from their team last year, you realize there's a lot of them. But I'm not, I, I did not pick the Astros to win this series. I, I won't pick the Astros to win the next series either, I don't think. Mm-hmm. And there is, in fact, I mean, this is... This is just subjective, but I mean, I totally agree with the broadcasters who kept noting that like they just don't look 
they don't look like the team that has I hate to, I hate to even say this but they don't look like they have swagger they don't look like they're having a great time they don't look like this is like their march to celebration so while watching them it does lull you into this feeling that they're not they're not all that anymore but um you know this year I didn't do my two player fantasy draft because of covid mm-hmm. um and but I had to have some like I needed some sort of competition to have to continue having a rooting interest so me and my friend would just every day each of us would pick a game we would pick one winner well, any game pick a winner no odds no anything you just pick a team you said was going to win and then we kept track to see who picked better and really up until the last week of the season we were still picking the Astros a lot. Like you could pick any team in baseball and mm-hmm. and yet you see Astros Mariners and like some part of your brain knows like that's that's a mismatch. So like I think that there is uh there's still like plenty to to fear. We know that. Uh we know that the Astros could be good. Mm-hmm. And it would not I don't know, it wouldn't shock me if the Astros won the next nine games. It wouldn't shock me if the Astros won a hundred games next year with basically the same roster. I think the Astros have 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 tipped into their decline as a mm-hmm. franchise for sure, but not for sure for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there was that Carlos Correa quote that everyone shared, right? I, I know a lot of people are mad. I know a lot of people don't want to see us here, but what are they going to say now? So it was like he was trying to have that sort of chip on his shoulder attitude. It, it was different from the like they never believed in us kind of thing that you hear teams say. In this case, it was like they hate us. They don't want us to be here. Which is true. Like uh, this was a, an accurate quote. I think uh, a lot of people don't want to see the Astros here, but they're here. And uh, if there's an us against them mentality that they have to motivate themselves, that's fine. But I wonder if their heart is entirely in that. Like I, I wonder if they've been worn down a bit just by being hated for for six months or or more. You know, even without having fans booing them constantly at the games, like. It, it's got to be pretty tiresome to feel like no one ever wants you to win and everyone thinks you're a cheater and, you know, like they were. <laughs> so they, they brought that upon themselves. But still, like uh, mentally, it must be a bit draining, I think, that it goes on for as long as it has gone on. So they're through. The Twins are out. I did enjoy seeing Max Kirilov make his Major League debut in a postseason game. He was the the first player to start a postseason game as his first Major League appearance and the first position player to get his first hit in the postseason. So that was weird and kind of fun. And that was like I heard a report that he was like hitting 800 or something at the alternate site. And, you know, you have no stats to go on at all, at least publicly. It's like, what has Max Kirilov done all year? I don't know. Apparently he's been pretty impressive. And then suddenly he's in the starting lineup in a a must-win playoff game. That was entertaining. Always enjoy when someone shows up in October and ideally makes some kind of impact, which Kirilov, you know, had a good game but didn't really have a chance to do. Anyway... Rays Jays we we haven't talked about and for me at least that's kind of the the Cubs Marlins AL equivalent like just for whatever reason with the timing of these games with the fact that they weren't super close for the most part I just did not see as much of the series as I did of the other AL series and as I would have liked to but you know it it went the way that I think a lot of people expected and the Rays are really impressive and have incredible depth and and mix and match and have a, a ton of bullpen guys that maybe you haven't heard of but they're all good and they all get saves and you know they have different lineups for righties and lefties and everyone is good somehow and they 
piece it all together and it's kind of impressive that they make it work as well as they do yeah not much to say about the rays the rays are really good yeah (laughs) they uh, you know are the blue jays good there are certain unanswerable questions that the 60 game season which is not equipped to answer and Mm -hmm. are the blue jays good is not one of them i we just (laughs) we don't have any way of knowing but i think everybody every single person in the world picked the rays nobody was saying coming into this i don't think you know the blue jays boy they could be dangerous not Mm -hmm. because they were not because nobody thinks they could be dangerous uh but because this was a big mismatch the rays look dominant right now the rays look uh hard to beat and i think the short in a way the shorter the series the the more dangerous the rays look i don't know why i don't know because i've heard the other i've heard the opposite that the longer the the longer well yeah i mean their depth helps them you got to understand ben a lot of things i just say because i think maybe it'll sound good and it'll go somewhere (laughs) Uh and then and then and then i just hope nobody else says anything against it (laughs) (laughs) okay well uh sorry for for observing that uh (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> other people have said something against that <laughs> yeah i don't have any opinions about whether the rays lane about the race I, I truly do not know whether the rays are are more dangerous in a three five or seven game series mm-hmm. uh i don't know it the doesn't rays... make that much of a difference <laughs> they're they're just really good and dangerous <laughs> they're gonna all have the time. a chance to prove it yeah. in, all, in all three of them i don't know yeah i didn't see any of this series <laughs> okay well you do get intriguing matchups like i'm i'm sure you know people who write about these sorts of storylines or or networks are happy that you get like A's Astros and Mike Fires maybe pitching against the Astros and Yankees Rays and the bad blood between those two teams like I don't know what anyone's expecting really like is there going to be a brawl or something I I mean I I hope not frankly but it gives people something to talk about that these teams don't really like each other in the kind of you know public performative way that we can tell what any baseball players think of any other baseball players. So we will reconvene. I'll I'll talk to Meg about how these series wrap up after the wild card games and we'll do a little division series preview. And then after this, it won't be quite so difficult to keep pace and actually see all of the playoff baseball. So we will talk about that next time. Okay, that will do it for today. Thank you for listening. It was hard to find a time when we were not watching or writing about baseball and could talk about baseball without everything we said immediately being obsolete and outdated. So hopefully we handled it okay. And as I mentioned, Meg and I will be back with one more episode before the end of the week to talk about yet more baseball and look forward to even more baseball. Lots and lots of baseball is sort of the theme of this week. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Dave Line, Sirion X, Phil Thomas, Joseph Villarreal, and Adam Schlissman. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. October is always a busy month in there. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg and Sam coming via email at podcast.bengrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance, even as he does double duty as a producer on Fangrass Audio. Stay tuned to your feeds for another episode soon. We will talk to you then. You've got